The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. And also joined today by guest host, Michael Cohen. Michael, Mitch, greetings. greetings. Thank you, Stephen. Stephen, it's great to be with you all for another monthly edition of our International Crossroads show. And I, I think that the last time we spoke, uh, you were going to find a shorter way to introduce Mitch's <laughs> numerous hats. <laughs> it doesn't sound like that's happened. Yeah, that's I know. The it's, of the world. <laughs> I, I, I'm still able to get it all out in one big breath, Michael. So we'll yeah. work on a condensed version so that Mitch can still maintain... Uh, his title, his worthy title, but I'll have to crop it a little bit, with your permission, of course, Mitch. <laughs> of course. <laughs> we'll have to have a breakfast meeting over that, Stephen. It'll probably be three hours before we yeah. can limit, you know. Absolutely. So today we've got, uh, as billed, a very interesting topic. And Michael, we're going to turn to you to, to uh, form the backdrop and actually help set it up. And we're going to talk about blockchain technology and uh, first of all, what that means, and that will be the bulk of our topic today. But um, as we talked uh, before we went on live, you just returned from the UK and you were before an international tribunal. And uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about your experience. Yeah, you know, I um, thank you, Stephen. I did just return from London in the United Kingdom and have been back in America for less than 24 hours. And most notably, I was appearing before an international tribunal on Monday and Tuesday, and of course, Monday evening, the United Kingdom experienced a very tragic event, uh, a suicide bomber, and uh, from all appearances, one not acting alone. Um, uh, uh, in short, the United Kingdom experienced a terrorist event that uh, seemed to target teenage girls attending a, a music concert in Manchester, um, in, in, in Manchester part of the United Kingdom. And I have, um, the next morning, Tuesday morning, I was scheduled to give a closing argument, and I, I really, I stood up, and I just couldn't do it. 
there, there seemed to be some need to just stop and mark the moment. Um, uh, you know, I feel as I have been around the world and am frequently around the world and grateful to be around the world that these events are occurring and I have this feeling that I have been there at the places where they have occurred so often that I wonder if I'm becoming desensitized to the occurrence and yet in that moment on Tuesday morning there was nothing desensitized about the feeling. So I did pause and uh, indicate and share my expression of sadness for the event before we could go forward. And I felt that everybody in the tribunal felt the same way and, and said as much. Um, and it was, I mean, it was grateful for really the moment in that room or in that tribunal that morning to be able to stop and say, hey, this is not business as usual. And something happened that should never be considered business as usual. And I hope that as a world, we never accept these kinds of tragedies as something that routinely or regularly should occur. I will hope that we will forever mark each one with all of the profound sadness and compassion they deserve and with the conscious and dignity that, has, that is being inflicted um, uh, on the modern world in these just heartless and insane targeting events. And with that, I think I'll just stop to do the same thing here. Well, Michael, that's actually a great, I'm glad that you shared that because I'm, I, uh, the image that I have of you in an international tribunal and taking the time to make those remarks before you even get to the merits of your case, I think is, uh, quite laudable, and I'm guessing having known you for a long time, uh, you felt the need to get that out before you even discussed the merits of your case. So I, I think that's really uh, kind of you to share those thoughts. And I'm, I'm probably uh, safe in saying that you vocalized what many people were thinking at the time. So bravo for doing that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I, I agree, really Mike. Thank, thank you for Actually, thank you for putting on the face of the, the not ugly American, the, the American, those of us who, who feel very connected in an international way with not just the global economy we talk about in this segment of international crossroads, but, but the global relationships that are required to, to maintain a civilized world. We talk a lot about the rule of law on this show as if it's the bulwark against everything, and yet these incidents remind us that there's a broader need for humanity to step up and have kind of a rule of civilization that exceeds even the, the dictates of the rule of law for all of this to work. So well put, Mitch. And, you know, on the, uh, the, the ugly or not ugly American side of the fence, I do feel that whenever I return home to this country, my country, um, assuming that the rest of the country, you know, is separate from California, um, or, or the same as California, rather. <laughs> I'm a part of both countries on occasion. But when I do, in all seriousness, the connection of the people in all walks of life in America to these events is profound. Everybody, I feel that, that there is, it is almost a, a, 
you know, you'd be hard pressed not to find a universal sadness and compassion for when these things occur because of our own connection and history suffering with the rest of the world in these areas. Um, and uh, what's so different in the United States about it is the pluralistic nature of our society is one where you look out over the, 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 the faces in the crowd and they are the world and they feel the same way. Um, you know, so with that pause and uh, that opportunity to mark this event, maybe we can move on to business to blockchain. Would it be a good time now to start to talk about that, guys? That's perfect, Michael. Let's let's set it up. And so I've introduced it, um, and with my introduction, I've almost exhausted all that I know about it. Blockchain. <laughs> I use the term blockchain technology, and I'll add one other thing. Uh, it's it's going to be. Uh, I think it's called uh, crypto economics. Would that yeah. be right? That's a, a, a well done, Stephen Wagner. Is that pretty good? That's fantastic. You perpetually surprise me every once well, in a while. I think you must like write down things to say. Well, <laughs> I, I think I did exhaust my bandwidth on the topic. So with that, uh, set it up. Set the table for us, Michael. What is blockchain? Sure. You know, so it's kind of interesting, this, this blockchain technology. It is a, it's a form of internet uh, or network technology that has evolved where there is literally a universal digital ledger um, that is kind of distributed. And, and to kind of understand that, let me talk about the traditional technology of internet technology. The more traditional way that the internet works is that um, banks or companies or, or ourselves, right, we have our own computers and they're in this, in this centralized room called this server room. And Anybody who has been in workplaces recently usually knows those as, like, blocked, and they say, don't go in here, and there's fireproofing and firewalls and all kinds of things. And that's called a centralized computer system. And, and so that computer system, in, in order to uh, record transactions or work with the rest of the world, makes copies of those things, but then other computer systems do the same thing. So from one bank to another, for example, Stephen, they don't have anything common. One bank has its own records of the ledger of the transfer of currency. Another bank also has a record of that transfer of currency. And there are all kinds of intermediary steps in between to confirm and document that exchange of value. In 1988, actually, at the dawn of the internet, there was a publication called the Crypto Anarchist Manifesto that basically was, you know, just classically, right, classically generated by com computer science folks who said, man, this, these networks are going to be dangerous. The government's going to control the networks. And then if the government controls the networks, they're going to control everything. We need some way for the people to control the networks rather than the government, right? And it's just classic, right, just classic distrust of, of government and, and power to the people movement. And so what happened is ecology emerged on the internet. The ba basically, the beginnings and seedings of internet cryptology emerged that said people can control their own worlds through a form of mathematic coding called cryptography. 
which is just a sophisticated way of saying there's a code or a wrapper around um, uh, everything that uh, indicates that you um, can't break into it. You can, in essence, um, uh, secure what you're saying. And, and texts use these things. This is the issue of the FBI trying to break into somebody's phone to see what it said. There's cryptography wrapped around everything. In 1998, BitGold came out, and this was a, uh, a first kind of system where it said, hey, we don't need banks. We can actually just communicate with each other and cryptographically wrap puzzles around our communications and agree on an exchange of value. I, you know, I agree to pay you this. You agree that you think that's value. I give you this. You give me that. And, and we don't need anybody else in the meantime. It was kind of an interesting thing, more fatty. Uh, faddish, I should say, and we all popped along. 2008, there was a financial meltdown, and in that financial meltdown, uh, an anonymous person who called himself Satoshi Nakamoto, Nakamoto, um, which is not an actual name, wrote a white paper, and it made the case for an open-source virtual currency, which became known as Bitcoin. Um. And Bitcoin operates on this technology called blockchain. So what is the blockchain? Now, finally, to your, your question, Stephen, what is the blockchain? The blockchain is this. It takes 10, it's, it's a universal ledger of transactions that marks and notes what people have done or who owns something or what they've agreed to in sort of 10-minute increments. And what's different about this chain, that's the block, the 10-minute increment, and the chain is, is, is universal. It exists everywhere rather than in a server room behind a firewall. Everybody who, who commits a transaction to the chain gets a copy of the ledger. It's completely open source. And that makes it extraordinarily interesting because it's almost impossible to hack. In order to change records or hack records, you would have to not only hit into a block on the chain, but you would have to then change everything in history around it. And that just can't be done as it currently exists. And the cryptography that exists is sufficient so that only certain people can use the people that are interacting with this distributed ledger, universally distributed ledger around the world. Only people interact with it, um, uh, or who need to interact with it for any particular type of transaction, have access to it. Over the past three years, $1.4 billion of venture capital has been put into blockchain. And I'll finish up with three quick sites for you all. 10% of the gross domestic product of the world is expected to be traded on this blockchain by 2025. 24 governments are investing in the blockchain now, and 90-plus central banks are investing in blockchain technologies. Um, Michael, let me pause you there, and we'll take advantage of what you just set up. When we return from the break, let's expand upon this notion of cutting out the middleman and the interest of banks and the impact on commerce You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about blockchain technology. 
Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about blockchain technology and crypto economics. And our discussion is principally led today by guest host Michael Cohen. Michael, before we uh, went out on the last break, we were about to get into the topic of the impact of blockchain technology on major institutions such as banks. So take it away. Yeah, so let's start there, right? Um, banks <clears throat> banks do a couple of things. Um, what they primarily do, however, right, is to secure and facilitate the exchange of currency. And what is currency? Currency is the fact or quality of being generally accepted or in use. It's a uh, circulation, 
as a medium of exchange, a common article of bartering. It doesn't have to be the money that the United States prints or, that, or, or the yen that the Japanese government prints or the British pound or the euro um, or the peso. Uh, uh, those are just things that um, <clears throat> the state kind of guarantees will be accepted for exchange um, uh, is, um, you know, for, for any particular nation. But sometimes those things can become valueless. Like the Venezuelan currency in Venezuela right now has zero value. It couldn't be exchanged for anything. So, how does this relate to block or, or blockchain technology? Well, a lot of currency is that is exchanged, right? Value that is exchanged, barters that is that exchanged. It's not exchanged directly between human beings. Stephen, when you go to buy a house, or Mitch, when you go to buy a car, we don't carry in, you know, uh, a, a, a fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars, right? <laughs> to to then count out to the automobile dealership, or in the case of a house, right, hundreds of thousands of dollars. We we write checks. We have banks secure the transactions or provide certificates that this is a quote unquote cashier's check. All these types of things. All of that is really just a requirement that I have this money and you have that money, and we are agreeing to exchange this money. And these banks, these centralized banks, will document all of that and authenticate all of that along the way. And, and, and Michael, let me just jump in. For, so for, for yeah. decades, hundreds of years, the letter of credit that even a ship captain could take and sail across the ocean to another country had the same function. There still was an intermediary that was saying, yes, they have that amount of value in our bank or with our government back home and we will honor it, right? What a fabulous example, Mitch. It couldn't be a better example. The, the, the historic letter of credit, which is how all international commerce really occurred, right, um, uh, uh, is, the, is the perfect ideal. Nobody was carrying all that gold on the ship to pay this person or that person along the way. They had banks on both sides and all kinds of intermediaries securing transactions. And those things get secured in these things called ledgers. The bank ledger, right? The bank, the coveted bank ledger. What what blockchain says in the banking world, and what it does to the banking world, is it says, "Hey, banks, your ledger doesn't mean anything. We don't just need created it. our own. We've got our own, and we just just don't need you. <laughs> we don't need you. We've got a worldwide, real time ledger that is updated in ten minute increments." And that is historic. It can be relied on. It is, you know, you know, you might be able to break into somebody's account, but you're never going to be able to change the ledger. The ledger is a distributed ledger worldwide. All of the things that you have done in the past, banks, we don't need you to do anymore. And that's what Bitcoin is. Okay, it's- let me let me let me stop right there just for a second because I I get all that and that sounds very wonderful, but. Where does the trust factor get built in? So I know if the Royal Bank of Scotland tells me that the letter of credit that somebody walks in with says that they have $10 million on account and they can commit to that and the Royal Bank of Scotland will honor that because they say they've got the gold in the account that they can give me. But now, who who, who is the ledger? <laughs> right. 
who am I trusting to say that this ledger, which is just information, right? It's it's not actual gold right. uh, or assets. Who, who is it? And <laughs> Mitch, I, I like, Mitch, yeah, I like exactly. that you're asking that question. Sorry to interrupt, but what yeah. Mitch is really asking is, show me the money. There's a run on the bank. I want my money, right? But what does the bank do when there's a run on the bank? They shut the doors because they don't have the money. They have a ledger. <laughs> That's what they have. They don't have the money. Right. So, so it's a it's a great question. It's like some of the, it's literally one of the most intuitively difficult things to understand or overcome. And the answer is this: the answer is in the Bitcoin itself. The Bitcoin becomes a virtual currency. It's the same thing as holding, a, say, a physical dollar, right? But it has its own value, including fractional values, by the way, and. And the only reason it works is because it becomes a common article of bartering, one where both sides or all sides will accept it, Mitch, to answer your question, as a medium of exchange. And so what you really want to know is, are they there? And there is, an, you know, you, you, the, the ledger system says who has them, where they are, and there is a system, in fact, of confirmation of that. So there are four or five steps there that will confirm the bitcoins do exist in this wallet and they do exist in this account and we do confirm that that transaction has in fact occurred. It is entirely dependent though Mitch on the point you raise which is that all sides to that barter or to that exchange accept the bitcoin as a currency of value. And initially, of course, Bitcoin had wildly fluctuating values depending on who would accept the currency in what ways and for what transactions. That has been well, in fact over the, over, over the years. It's ranged from pennies to twelve hundred dollars a Bitcoin. Absolutely, I mean, you'd say widely ranging. I mean, it's unlike any currency we've seen that can have that variation. So, That's so right. and I don't want to talk. We'll talk about it in the next segment, but it it almost it almost sounds like you know you, you not only are dealing in bitcoin but you've got to somehow watch this marketplace value of the bitcoin because if i buy 10 bitcoin a 10 bitcoin item yesterday and the bitcoin's worth x but now today the bitcoins are worth x times 3 i mean i guess your answer is all currencies have variations but none have ever had that kind of variation Right, but none have also had such universal, universal application. You know, th th there was a Ukrainian protester who had a sign out that said, you know, uh, whatever she was protesting, she then had her, her sort of Bitcoin scanner up, you know, on the, on the sign. And in instantly she, she raised like 15,000, um, uh, what would be considered 15,000 U.S. dollars in Bitcoin currency. And it had that value at that moment tracked on a universal ledger that can never be changed that she could immediately use in, so, in some way that is recorded around the world. And it, you sort of have to wonder, boy, um, is that going to replace the need for national currencies? Michael, let me, let me fire off a question here for you. Uh, and get you to stand in the shoes of the banks, if I may, for a moment. As I read up on the topic, I view this technology as having significant impact 
to lending institutions, banks. Uh, it, and it, it really has this flavor of cutting out the middleman, which, right. is, which is touted as a positive with the advent of this technology. Yet I'm thinking about the negative aspect in terms of uh, the bank's position. And I gather they're kind of scrambling to embrace the technology and at the same time sort of watch out for their bottom line. Would I be right? I, I, you know, I, I don't, I can never speak to what banks' intent is, Stephen. But it, 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 what I can say is this: I, bit, bit, uh, not only Bitcoin, but blockchain, blockchain, the technology on which Bitcoin operates, tends to completely cut out hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that banks collect on transaction fees along the way for almost every you know everything ranging from loan transactions to withdrawing money from an ATM network all of that goes away in addition to your point Stephen jobs go away because a lot of banking jobs uh, have to do with documenting those transactions and those fees all along the lines of so many financial transactions around the world when people can communicate directly on a, on a technology that universally provides the ledger, then there's no need for the bank and all of those people. A whole lot of things do stand to go away. So in some senses... Well, wait a minute, Michael. So, Michael, but let, far be it for me to be the law and order guy here. But, right. but what also goes away is, is regulatory and enforcement protections from fraud, scam, theft money laundering, criminal enterprise. I mean, all of that goes right out the window as well, right? Well, you can't counterfeit. You can't counterfeit a Bitcoin because you, you can't change the ledger, right? Uh, and you can't, uh, you can't c can conduct a fraudulent transaction. It's much harder to do that. But it is, uh, you know, there, your, 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 your overarching point, Mitch, which is, whoa, <laughs> Who's, a, who's regulating this world of free-flowing, you know, direct peer-to-peer -peer exchanges and currencies and, the, you know, the, the ripeness for um, all types of things that can happen in the financial world? To a certain extent, blockchain removes the potential for so, those things. It does create new risks. Uh, and to your question about who should be regulating it, the agencies are starting to, to get that. And, and interestingly enough, Mitch, it lends great credibility to to the blockchain technology and to Bitcoin's role going forward. In 2013, for example, the United Michael, States... Michael, we may have lost you temporarily there, but... Uh, am I back? Yeah, you're there, Michael. I can hear you. Good. In, in 2013, the United States um, uh, Financial Criminal Enforcement Network created a unit for, for, for Bitcoin and for virtual currencies. And they are looking at how they're going to regulate it and how they are going to um, uh, encapsulate this new world. State money transmitters, Mitch and Stephen, are doing the same thing. The SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, actually allows trading through virtual currency and Bitcoin in dark pools now, which isn't regular market, but certain a certain market that they kind of encapsulate called dark pools. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission has recognized recently that Bitcoin is a commodity 
and it's looking into how to regulate that. Okay, so Michael, that that's good. I'm glad you're sharing that. That you're what you're uh, highlighting there is that it this technology will not signal the end of government oversight. It'll just come in different forms because we're we are talking about commerce and we are talking about the potential application of, of criminal statutes and, and rules that have been uh, long-standing. Absolutely. And Stephen, the, the risk, the greatest risk in many ways is a risk we see, I feel, recurring more and more often in the technology arena. You know, Moore was right, I, I think, or, or at least we are experiencing Moore's law in technology environments constantly. And what we're experiencing is this accelerated pace of change that is exponential. And it continues to accelerate beyond the ability of the law to catch up to it more and more often. And I feel that we're already in this arena where the law is trying to catch up to a technology that is taking off. Yeah, you know, Michael, we are, we're coming up on, on a break. But I, I wondered if, do you remember PayPal, the advent of PayPal? Of course. It wasn't that a form of Cutting out the middleman, also, it tried to be, and still still exists. Um, the 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 difficulty that PayPal had is it had to depend on the middleman it wanted to cut out. Right. Bitcoin doesn't. Okay. Good point. Yeah. So, so the the potential uh, implementation of blockchain really could signal the end of the role of the middleman because it's now. I don't know if it's right to call it peer-to-peer, but we're now talking about two consumers conducting business without an intermediary, right? On a universally distributed ledger. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. When we come back, we'll expand on that topic. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio, and we're talking about blockchain technology. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. 
They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our topic today is blockchain technology, crypto economics, and we've been talking about the basics behind this technology, and we've talked about the impact on the banking industry, and I think we should move into the topic of potential um, residual impact and potential wrongdoing. Mitch, you uh, wanted to set the table with a few topics. Well, well, that's true. So, first of all, let me let me tell you that my my son had a Bitcoin account back in the early days, as as kids tended to do, and he lost his entire account by a hack of the Mt. Gox uh, hacking back in two thousand and fourteen. So, what I understand from you to say, Michael, is that that was a, a an illegal act, but it wasn't the ledger you've talked about. It was some third party and. That's my worry about this or my concern, and I would think that it might be Stephen's concern as well, that as we try to deal with criminal enterprise and wrongdoing, how do you authenticate this data? How, you know, you've talked about these wallets that are all over the world, but they don't have to be in a real person's name. We don't even know what country they're in. I mean, how, how do you go about doing the things that we as lawyers and Stephen as a prosecutor has to do if this becomes the the mode of exchange. Yeah, think think about the you know it's often it, it's often easy for me to try to try to make physical world analogies to a situation and then transpose that to what does it mean for this stuff, right? So if if your son had, you know, his $1000 US dollars in a bank account and the bank got robbed. Um, uh, there's federal insurance, right, for for the bank up to a hundred or whatever the limit is, uh, right. and so that the bank would get that money and put it back in his account and wouldn't have to say that it's ledger that day he lost his money. But if the bank robber went out and then gave it to you know two thousand different people who put the money in their wallets, you wouldn't know who those people are. You wouldn't know where to find them. You'd be still chasing the bank robber. With virtual currency, the universal ledger will tell you exactly who received the money. The problem is the who. 
as you said, Mitch, the, these are anonymous wallets that could could be anywhere in the world, and the money could go in and out of them several different times to several different other places, and uh, you know it it, it would it could be very very difficult. On the one hand, the ledger will give you the most accurate re- recourse and accurate record that that uh, a criminal prosecutor, for example, like Stephen, would ever have to to follow the money. The, the difficulty he would have is is knowing who to go to and where to, and what to do with that information, and um, uh, and and that, and that presents the, the world that we're in a, a world where the regulations are catching up to the the technology. Well, and Michael, the, but where's the jurisdiction? You know, I mean, if if I if I stole the money and ran to the Grand Caymans or ran right. to a, a some place where I cannot be extradited. Right. There's a problem, but at least you know the jurisdiction. I would go to the government of the Grand Caymans and say, "Please give me Stephen Wagner back and and all the money he has in his bank account there, because we've convicted him of a crime and we need the money and his body back." But none of that exists in what in the world you've now laid out for us. No, it doesn't. But the virtual wallet does, and that could be, you know. Uh, you know, theoretically, under under international trade agreements and other types of treaties, there there could be a universal consensus for some regulatory environment where uh, the, the wallets can be frozen and that <clears throat> those bitcoins, <clears throat> excuse me, in essence, uh, those bitcoins can can remain there and will remain there in those wallets until something can happen. And there, but there is, you know, to your point, Mitch, there is currently. No regulation or no common understanding between countries for a global worldwide currency on how to approach those situations. Michael, you know, um, and Mitch, I can let me chime in on a couple of the the topics that you just raised, Mitch. One with respect to the jurisdiction, and I'll make some analogies uh, to identification theft, ID theft, or uh, conspiracy based crimes where there is an ID theft at the root of the uh, the bad act jurisdiction in fraud cases is typically based upon where the fraud occurred which again raises the a, a new spectrum a new issue of how do you determine where fraud uh, started or occurred uh, and it's usually uh, where the bad act occurred and what you're raising, Mitch, is a really, really fascinating topic because hackers are pretty much roving wrongdoers. So uh, the answer to how do you establish the crime uh, with respect to authentication is going to be really circumstantial evidence, you know, having to make inferences that this person was the actual perpetrator. Uh, but typically jurisdiction is... is is set uh, where the bad act occurred, and then finding where the bad act occurred is is a challenge. So, um, the who done it aspect is going to be fascinating, and and is really always a, a very challenging thing to prove. That, so, Michael, we've talked about a lot about the Bitcoin part, and we're we're not a lot of time left. But run back, run by some of the other areas that we need to be thinking about, because there's essentially stock market exchanges go away. Uh, international contracting goes direct without these letters of credit or banking. I mean, what what else should we be watching for? Let's let's talk about yeah some of those. I, you know, and it, it kind of raises this thing that <clears throat> this phenomena that we are seeing 
in all nations of the world, which is the stratification toward a digital economy and a technology-based uh, world itself is leaving all kinds of jobs uncertain, right? And, and you know, it, 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 it's not necessarily a, a need to be worried about it because there is some general notion that as the world changes, new jobs and new kinds of things will be created. But there's certainly, we're starting to experience a real gap between the time that technology displaces jobs and the time that the new world creates new ones. Because there's an awful lot of people that feel pretty scared right now about their jobs going away and they don't know what to do by the new ones. And, and, bit, and blockchain technology does have probably the greatest potential to impact that than almost anything I can think of. Take a global shipping transaction that you kind of talked about at the beginning, Mitch, with a letter of credit. To ship, um, say, a cargo of grain from uh, uh, Long Beach, California to... to um, Corpus Christi. Yeah, Corpus Christi. Well, no, go farther even than that. Do an international one, you know, so, somewhere in Southeast Asia, right across the Pacific. Not a hard trip. That single shipment can often require 200 different transactions along the way involving 30 organizations, you know, from, from, from the stevedores uh, to the folks who unload and load on both, uh, uh, on both ends, the insurance that's required along the way, the reinsurance contracts for that shipment along the way. Uh, you, you can just go on and on and on. All of those kinds of things that are, are, are methods of, of contracting or authentication that go on with that particular transaction, that can all take place on a blockchain ledger. And if it takes place technology, you know, in, an, in, a, in a technical way on a blockchain ledger, all of those organizations along the way that help facilitate that transaction now, they're gone. They don't need to be there. It's a great cost efficiency that should lower the price of that shipment accordingly. But there are also potentially, uh, you know, a whole lot of jobs along the way that are no longer needed. Another place where this happens, and I'll pause after this one, Mitch, because I'd love to get your and Stephen's thoughts on it. Property law. This is something happening here in the United States right now. If you think about a property law transaction, buying a house. There's a payment transaction, an escrow, a titling transaction, and a recording transaction. What if all of those things could be done by a blockchain, a, a, a universal ledger that everybody has that can never be changed? There's an awful lot of jobs along the way. And Cook County in Chicago, the second largest property transaction county in the United States, it's the Chicagoland area, currently has a pilot program doing just this, using a blockchain technology to do all of these things when it comes to title recording and, and escrow and payment, et cetera, for, for, for land value. Well, and I saw a discussion that we could do, a, there's been conversation of how can we have electronic voting in elections, right? and that blockchain technology could be the answer of how to have secure voting. That's right. And some nations do that now um, and have done it successfully. Um, uh, and then yeah. healthcare, evidently uh, healthcare records or healthcare payments and, and all of that. Again, where you'd like to be nice if you had universal access to 
your records and your account uh, and your access to insurance. Blockchain can do that as well. It can. The digital medical record. No no longer does that need to be a creature of the physician network or the hospital in your community. The digital medical record becomes yours. It's something that you, you have two or three different keys that only you can access. You can give those to your um, uh, physician at, or, or any hospital or physician at any point in time. But that digital medical yeah. record, re, re, you know, it exists universally with only your ability to access it. Um, it you know, take, take digital media. I think that's just an extraordinary thing that some of the folks here at my law firm have been working on on the blockchain world. Every creation by an artist could come with its own rights control, where in order to access it, there is some payment scheme that the ledger itself understands and recognizes and won't release the technology, the crypto. The crypto economics, Stephen, right? The cryptology won't be released until the economics are satisfied. And those payments could be different. Those rights could be controlled around the world uh, and controlled differently in, in, you know, in, in, the, in uh, China than they are in um, America uh, versus Canada or Mexico or anywhere else. Um, and each package, each, each song, each video, each movie no longer needs all these monitoring. It has its own cryptology um, uh, if you will, wrapper that in essence controls its own rights and who pays for it and how and when, and it all occurs through this virtual currency. There's just a million different arenas where this can happen. So the whole concept of international intellectual property protection gets kind of turned upside down from our archaic method of having some place nationally where you register your rights, but very difficult to access where those rights are and what the product is to this international system that would just completely usurp that. Absolutely, in a heartbeat. And, you know, just by simple technology of crypto economics, as, as, as Stephen started the, the hour with. It, it completely displaces the world as we know it. And it's for this reason that blockchain is one of the most Google-searched terms exponentially increasing every day. This I saw that, Michael. It was 1,900% spike in Google searches or something like that. Absolutely, Stephen. This technology has the ability to change the world. People are analogizing blockchain sort of in a way that we can kind of physically sense and experience the potential revolution here to the way that email almost completely displaced paper communications. Well, All right. Well, Michael, as we wrap wrap up today… I think I might tell you, maybe it's just me, I don't know about Stephen, but this might be the most frightening topic you've ever brought to us. The, the risk, <laughs> I mean, it's the, just because the risks are unknown. I mean, there's ones we can perceive, but think of the ones we can't. That's what scares me. Well, we're going to have to come back to maybe each one of these subtopics that you've raised, from banking to healthcare to electronic voting to all of these things, and it all seems to be surrounded on this topic of blockchain. Michael, thank you very much for bringing that up for us, and, and welcome back from London. We're glad to have you back safely. As, as we say each week, we remind you that you can hear an archive of today's show on voiceamerica.com business channel and on wagnerandwinnick.com. Until next week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. 
I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 